The text for today, today's sermon is John 5, 1 through 9. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is a, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is five-roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to them, to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you uh, that you're a God that speaks. We thank you that you're a Father that leads. Lord, sometimes it's hard to discern how far we should go in laying out the details of what it is that you want from us. And sometimes we cross that line and we end up creating all kinds of rules that are really more about us than about you. We end up becoming legalists, Lord, that are displeasing to you rather than sons and daughters that are pleasing to you. So please help us, Father. Please help us to hear this story. Please help us to let it sink deep into our hearts, not only this Sunday, but for the next two Sundays, Father. Please use this chapter, John chapter five, to grip our hearts and to shape our lives. Teach us, Father, the way that we should walk. And I thank you for what you will do. I thank you for preserving this one singular story from the second year of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. I thank you for preserving that. And I pray now that you would work it, that you would massage it deep into our hearts, deep into our ways of life, and I thank you, Father, for what you'll do in Jesus' name, amen. We don't know how much time passed between the end of John chapter four and the beginning of John chapter five, but it was probably one year, and it may have been at least a year and a half. Remember, John is only giving us cliff notes about Jesus' life, right? Remember he said at the end he didn't write about everything that could possibly be written about. In fact, as I just hinted at in my prayer, some of the scholars I read today are, are this week are convinced, and I am too, that chapter five is the singular scene that we see from the second year of, of Jesus' ministry. So think about that. Of a whole year of ministry, John picked one story to tell us. That's a significant thing. A lot of time has passed, probably a year, maybe a year and a half. And while Jesus was still on the radar of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, evidently their focus had shifted from him to other things, and so now he felt comfortable returning to the city. John tells us in verse one that Jesus was drawn there by a feast of the Jews. He doesn't tell us what feast that was. Could have been the Passover. Could have been the Jewish New Year, what we now call Rosh Hashanah. It could have been the Feast of Tabernacles. We don't really know, and evidently it doesn't really matter because John didn't tell us about that. What does matter is that Jesus felt comfortable going to Jerusalem again. And what does matter is that in Jerusalem, there was a pool where sick people used to gather in the hope of being healed. That pool was on the northeast side of the city, just outside of the temple gates. It was called the Pool of Bethesda, which means the house of outpouring. 
and it was located near the part of the city where the sheep gate was located. Thank God for Google because these days you can just Google the sheep gate, after church please, but you can Google sheep gate and you can actually see it. There are both pictures and there are models that, that help us understand how this whole thing was set up. And just a little parentheses here. This is one way by, that I love to use Google when I'm doing Bible study is when I'm seeing place names and things like that, I like to Google it and look at it, and I encourage you to do the same thing because it helps so much for us to get in touch with the reality of the stories that we're reading. It helps us so much to be able to draw a mental picture of where people were moving and how things were happening, and it has helped me so much to, to grasp just the daily reality of the things about which God speaks in the Word of God. The Sheep Gate was called the Sheep Gate because that's the place where the sacrificial lambs uh, for the temple would pass into the city. And what would happen is that they would come through that gate and then they would go to this very pool, to the pool of Bethesda, and they would be washed in that pool. They would, in other words, be prepared to be clean and therefore to be sacrificed for the sake of the people's sins. As for the pool itself, it was part of a larger reservoir system in the city of Jerusalem, and so that's part of where it got its water from, and it was also fed from below by springs. Every once in a while, those springs would release a, a bunch of water into the pool, causing the pool to stir and causing the pool to bubble up and causing it to become slightly red, probably because there was iron in the water. Somewhere along the way, People got the idea that the water was stirring not because of springs, but because of an angel of the Lord. They began to teach that an angel of the Lord came at those times and stirred up the water, and somewhere they got the somewhat crazy idea that the first one in the water would get a healing. Who knows where that came from, but it was surely a tradition of the time. You can imagine then why a multitude of sick people, of blind people, of crippled people, of variously incapacitated people would gather there under the five-roofed colonnades where they could be kept from the sunshine and all of the other elements, and they would wait there for the water to bubble up. They were waiting for the angel of the Lord, beloved. They were longing to be healed. They were suffering, and they were tired of suffering. And for those of you who have suffered, not for a day or a week, but for month after year after decade, you know that sometimes just enduring suffering can become so incredibly exhausting. That's why these people were there, beloved. They wanted to be healed. Now, if you're reading from the ESV or the NIV, would you please do me a favor and look at verse 4? And maybe somebody could stand and read verse 4 aloud. Maybe, Ethan, would you like to read it? No, I'm joking. There's no verse 4 there. All you'll see is the, is the number Four. In fact, verse 4 is missing from the ESV and the NIV, as is the end of, of verse 3, and we have to ask why. Why is this so? Well, when the King James Bible was translated, the available Greek text contained verses 3b through 4, but as we discovered more and more manuscripts over the years, it became evident that those verses were actually not in the original text of John. We actually have copies of the manuscript where a scribe wrote a note on the side of his manuscript explaining this tradition, really this superstition, this myth, to help people understand what was happening in this passage. But then another scribe came along, he took the note that was on the side and stuck it into the actual text itself, you see? 
And so the note that the scribe wrote on the side of his text was accurate to the tradition, but it was not a part of the original text. And this is why the ESV, the NIV, and many modern translations are beginning to disinclude it from the text of the Bible because it surely was not real. In fact, I couldn't discover a single scholar in our day that argues that it was originally there. So I just wanted to talk about that for a minute so you weren't frightened by the fact that a verse was missing from your Bible. No demonic thief came in and stole part of God's word from you. It was, there, was, there were reasons for that. Now, when I say that the scribal note was accurate, what I mean is that he was accurately recounting the tradition of the day. I'm not saying that the scribe believed that an angel of the Lord actually came and stirred the waters. I'm not saying that he believed that the first person into the water got healed. Even the religious establishment of that day saw this as nothing but a great superstition. They tried to persuade people to stop believing it, but for whatever reason, they allowed it to go on. And on this point, we can can, uh, agree with the Jewish establishment. This was nothing more than a superstition. The Lord doesn't work by magic, amen? If someone tells you in order to get healed, you gotta do all this fancy stuff and you know crazy things and go through these rituals, don't believe them. Don't believe him. God works person by person, life by life. He works by hands, not by magic. There among the needy and lying by the pool was a man who had been sick and probably crippled for some 38 years. Several things in this story indicate that he was a poor man. And for poor men of that day, 38 years was not a lot less than the actual life expectancy of a person, especially of a male in that time. And so probably this man had been crippled from birth or at least from the time he was very young. He had spent most of his life in this sorry state and it looked like he would be sick and crippled to the day of his death. Now I'm saying that this man was sick and crippled because that is more, the more literal meaning of the word that's used to describe him in verse five if you look at it there. It says in the ESV an invalid but the, but the literal word is sick. And in verse three, it talks about a whole group of people that were like him. The literal word there is sick. And I want to say the word sick rather than the word invalid because I have to be frank with you, I hate the word invalid. Hate is a strong word, but I literally hate the word invalid. I remember the first time when I was in college and I really thought about that word and I pronounced it slowly and I realized that it means it's, it's invalid. Who are we to call a human being invalid? It's a horrible, horrible thing to say. Nobody is invalid, beloved. I don't care what kind of difficulty or disease or deformity a human being was born with or that they acquired after they were born. No human being is invalid. And we should watch our words. Words matter. Words develop pictures in our minds that cause people to take actions. Horrible things have happened to human beings because they were degraded below the status of human beings. We should not be using words like invalid. I wish we would strike it from the dictionary. I really do. Except when it actually means invalid. I wish the Bible translators would just take it out of their vocabulary. If that word faithfully translated the meaning of a Greek or Hebrew word, then we'd have to translate it properly and do our best to understand it and explain its implications. But that is not what's happening here. The word here just means sick, and that's exactly how we should translate it. That's exactly how we should think about it. And I encourage you to follow me and strike the word invalid from your vocabulary. Okay, end of rant. I am now officially off my soapbox and back to the pulpit. But I hope you can understand especially I was thinking about Rebecca Gilmer today who spends her life 
ministering to people who are physically and mentally incapacitated, but they are not invalid people. They are full human beings. And again, beloved, you could look throughout history. It has always been the church who rose up to make that case. We have to be careful. I don't know the, the translators of John for the ESV. I, I don't have any personal criticism of them. I just wish they would be more careful with their words. Now, as for Jesus, he was seeking the face of his father on that day, and he was walking in the will of his father on that day, and that's why he ended up by this pool. I really want us to understand that. He was not randomly wandering around. He was not a random person. Over the last few weeks, I've given a lot of thought to the fact that Jesus was absolutely without sin, and therefore for him, there wasn't even a second of his life where his mind was distracted from God. Can you imagine living like that? I feel like there's hardly a second of my life where I'm not distracted from God. You know what I mean? Just so many other things in my life, so many other things in my heart, so many other things in this world just feels like just constantly pulling me away from God. This was not reality for Jesus. He was always focused on his Father. He was always following on his Father. It was not random chance that led him to that pool, beloved. He was following his Father. He got to the pool of Bethesda. Not many people went there, actually, because if you went there, if you touched sick people, you would become ceremonially unclean, and you would not be able to go into the temple complex. So it was an amazing thing that he even went there. And to me, it's an amazing thing that when he went there, he saw this man. And please note that he saw a man. He saw a full human being, and he had compassion on him. When Jesus saw him, he knew he had been in this state for a long time. It's not so much that the man had been at the pool for a long time, it's that he had been sick for a very long time and probably came and went from that pool quite a bit over the years. Jesus could have discerned this just from his physical appearance or maybe somehow the Father helped him to know something about this man that he couldn't otherwise know. Either way, whatever the case, when Jesus saw him and noticed his condition, he had compassion on the man. He was stirred up by the Holy Spirit of God to do something for him, to act. But first, Jesus asked a very wise question. He looked at the man and said, do you want to be healed? Now, isn't that a strange question? Everybody who was at that pool, it was really a difficult thing for them to even be there. They couldn't get there on their own. This guy couldn't walk or ride there. He, he had to be taken there. It was a big deal to get him there. And he went there specifically to be healed. So isn't it a strange question to ask? Do you want to be healed? I think there are two reasons why Jesus asked this question. First of all, I think Jesus was helping this man to search his own heart. It's a very odd thing, beloved, but sometimes we really love the brokenness in our lives. We become so used to our brokenness, we become so used to our sin, we become so used to the things that are tying us down that we actually don't wanna let them go. You've heard the saying that the devil I know is better than the devil I don't know, where well, there's something to that here in this kind of situation. I might be sick, I might be disabled, but I don't really know what it's like to be free, and so as much as I will say that I wanna be healed, I actually don't wanna be healed. I saw a documentary this week about people who were 14, 15 years old and being incarcerated as adults well into their lives. And this one particular story was kind of tragic. A kid, he did commit a crime, but it didn't deserve the sentence that he got. By the grace of God, he was let out of prison at about 25 years old, and now the interviewer was sitting with him, and the interviewer said, it must be an amazing feeling for you to be free. You must be really happy. And the young man looked at her and said, ma'am, I'm, I'm not happy at all. 
And she said, well, that's strange. I, I would expect that after getting your freedom, you would feel happy. And he said, I'm not happy because what I know is life in prison. I don't know life out here, and I'm scared. I don't know what to do with it. So I think that Jesus was trying to help this man think about this question. Do you really want freedom, or do you want to grasp on to the things that you have already known? Second, Jesus asked this question because he wanted to help this man, but he wanted the man's assent it amazes me. Jesus doesn't need anybody's permission to do anything. Isn't that right? He is God. He is free to do anything he wants in any way he wants. But I, I don't know a, a, another way to say it than this right now, at least. He's a perfect gentleman. Doesn't impose himself on people. He doesn't have to ask our permission, but he does ask our permission. And I think that he was asking for this man's assent. He was asking this man to open up his heart and to open up his mind and to allow him to do something great. The sick man obviously didn't know what he was planning to do, didn't even think that was a possibility. And so he just said this in verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up, and while I am going, while I'm doing everything I can to get into the pool to get the healing that I need, someone comes in before me. Someone steals the healing, so to speak. Well, hearing these words, and I think more importantly, seeing the look in the man's eyes, understanding the man's heart, Jesus did an amazing thing. Verses eight and nine, he said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once, without any delay, at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. For 38 years, that man was not able to get up on his own. Please just take a second and let that sink in. For 38 years, this man could not stand on his own power. What would that be like? For 38 years, that man was not able to take his little straw bed and roll it up and put it on his shoulder and carry it the way that poor people like him did. For 38 years, years this man was not able to walk for 38 years this man was not able to travel on his own power from one place to another and now by the power of Jesus by the mercy of Jesus the healing grace of God was flowing through his body strengthening his bones strengthening his muscles imagine all that it would take to make a person walk from 38 years of paralysis to this it was a great miracle, a full body miracle. Who knows what that physically felt like, but all I know is that his heart was filled with the faith to do what he was just commanded to do. John doesn't say that he put his faith in Jesus, but you can just see it by his actions, can't you? He got up, he rolled his mat up, and he began to walk. By the power of Jesus' word, this human being who had suffered for so long got up, rolled up his straw mat, put it on his shoulders, and began to walk away from the pool of Bethesda. Oh, beloved, what a tremendous demonstration of love, of mercy, and of wisdom this was. What a gift this was to this man, and not only to him, but to everybody who saw the scene. What an amazing revelation of the glory of Jesus this story has been over the last 20 centuries. This was a sign that caused wonder and should have built faith in everybody who saw it and everybody who heard about it. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case for everyone. Please look at verse 9. John drops a bomb at the end of verse 9. He said, now that day was the Sabbath. And because that day was the Sabbath, the religious leaders in Jerusalem took offense at what Jesus had done and began to pursue him. 
John doesn't spell out the details for us here, but in my mind's eye, what I imagine happened is that the man took his mat, his mat, he began to walk, and somewhere as he was walking, some of the religious leaders saw him walking with his mat, and they began to interrogate him about what he was doing. So look at verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They probably didn't know at this point that he had been healed. All they know is what they saw. Here's a man walking with his mat, and according to them, that was illegal. So the, you know, the, the religious police here basically stop him and interrogate him. Imagine, if you will, that you're in Washington, D.C., a place of great power, and God does an amazing miracle in your life, and you're walking down the streets, you're in shock about what just happened. You can't hardly believe that you're walking, you're celebrating the things of God, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, 10 or 12 senators just surround you and begin to grill you. How would you feel in that moment? Well, I think this man probably felt flustered, he probably felt scared, and he didn't know what else to say but this, verse 11. He said, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. In other words, the reason that I'm doing this right now is not because I'm trying to be rebellious, it's because I'm being submissive. Somebody told me to do this, he healed me, he gave me this command, I'm just following orders. Now some commentators argue that this man was trying to keep himself out of trouble and to place the blame on Jesus, but honestly, that that just makes little sense to me. This man had just been healed. This man had just begun to walk, maybe even for the first time in his life. How would you feel if that had happened to you? I think the man was in shock. I think the man was in awe. I think the man was overcome with joy. I think he didn't hardly know how to even articulate what he was feeling. Just a thought. Carrying mats and Sabbath laws were the last thing on his mind, don't you think? If that was to happen to you, would you be thinking about the technicalities of the law he was trying to celebrate, beloved? And here they come to grill him for the great thing that God had done. And besides that, what else was he supposed to say? That's what happened. Somebody told him to take up his mat and walk, and he did. So then they just asked him, well, who was it then that told you to do this? He didn't know his name. Jesus had quickly left the scene. He slipped into the crowd. The guy actually never even got a chance to meet him. And again, some commentators suggest that this man was so full of himself that he didn't even bother introducing himself to Jesus, but that's not the way John tells the story. John says Jesus healed him and slipped away. He wasn't there to put on a show. Jesus wasn't there to increase his following that day. He was there to demonstrate the love of God to a particular man. When he did that, this man was, couldn't believe that he could get up and walk and do what he was doing. Again, introductions were probably not the first thing on his mind. But even if he turned around to see where the guy was and to introduce himself, Jesus was already gone. I find no fault in this man for not being able to name Jesus and for just saying that he's the one who did this to me. And so the religious leaders let him go. The Bible then says that sometime later, Jesus found this man in the temple And beloved, this is a place where we have to pause and celebrate. Where did Jesus find this man? He found him in the temple. Think about that. If you read the Old Testament carefully, a man in his physical state was forbidden from going into the house of God. Now because of the gracious touch of Jesus Christ, this man was able to walk. He could have gone anywhere he wanted to go. Where did he choose to go? He chose to go into the house of God. He chose to go there to celebrate. I don't know his heart, but I can't imagine that he didn't go in there to worship, maybe to do the will of God. 
It's an astonishing thing that God not only healed a man's physical deformities, but essentially qualified him to come close to him, to come into the place where his glory dwelt. Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. Look, you're not sick anymore. Look, you're able to move about. Look, you're able to worship God in the very house of God. And then Jesus said to him, sin no more, that something worse may not happen to you, that nothing worse may happen to you. Over the centuries, there have been those who have taken that statement in verse 14 to mean that this man's sickness was somehow tied to a specific sin. And there is some biblical evidence for that because there are stories where people's sin actually does cause a certain kind of sickness. We don't want to remove that possibility from the table. But in this particular context, I, I don't really think that's what's going on. I think Jesus is just simply saying to this man, listen, I just healed you. I did a great thing for you. I now gave you freedom. Don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh because if you use your freedom to indulge your flesh, you will alienate yourself from God and you will come under the just condemnation of God and that is a far worse fate than being sick and crippled for 38 years. Don't go that way. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but rather love God and serve other people. I think that that's what's happening. You can draw your own conclusions but that's where my heart is at. John doesn't tell us how this man responded to Jesus, but he does say that the man then went and told the Jews that Jesus had healed him. And again, some commentators use this against this man and say that he was essentially eager to report Jesus, that he was eager to tell those who were against Jesus what he had done, but I just really don't think that's the case. Maybe I'm wrong, it's possible that I'm wrong, but I would assume that this guy was under obligation I assume that the powerful people of Jerusalem said, if and when you find out who did this, you need to tell us. And I assume he was just doing what he felt he needed to do. I also assume that this man was not a legal expert. I don't think people laying by a pool for 38 years, although he wasn't literally there for 38 years, but he was in that condition for 38 years, I don't think they spent a lot of time thinking about the details of the law. He didn't understand the implications of telling them that Jesus was the one who healed him. So I think he was just doing what he was told to do. And besides that, the identification of Jesus in this story ended up setting up the rest of chapter five, the last two-thirds of chapter five, which we'll look at for two more weeks from now. And I think when we look deeply at what's said in chapter five, we'll see the absolute jewel it is, the treasure that it is. And it came about because this man reported Jesus and then Jesus got into a confrontation with the religious leaders, a confrontation that even to this day, we still desperately need to hear. Can you imagine, beloved? These people should have said, sir, put your mat down and let's get on our knees and worship God for the great thing that he had done. That's what they should have done. But they were legalists, beloved. They had squeezed out the life of God by the love of their rules, and they were impugning the work of God right in the sight of everybody. We need to hear what Jesus has to say because we're still prone to these things today. In verse 16, you will see that John says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, and that word persecuting is very strong. It means pursuing with intense passion because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So let me ask, what are these things? What exactly are we talking about? There are two of them that come in this order. First of all, 
This means that Jesus was causing another man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, and according to them, he was breaking the Sabbath law, and this means that they were accusing him of healing on the Sabbath, which was a kind of work, and they were condemning him for that. So understand, there are two charges. Healing on the Sabbath, that's one charge, but the main thing here is that he caused someone else to sin on the Sabbath. In Jewish law, Causing somebody else to sin was a much greater sin than sinning yourself. And so believe me, these charges come in this order. He caused another person to sin and he healed on the Sabbath. And boy, for that, did they ever want his head. So I want to ask the question and address the question, were they right about this? Is it possible that they got the interpretation right? Did Jesus in fact break the Sabbath law? And if he broke the Sabbath law, what should have been done in fact to him? Please keep your finger in John 5, but turn with me to Exodus 31. The address is up on the screen if you forget to, or if you don't remember the place that I say. Exodus chapter 31. We'll look at verses 13 through 17. Here's what the Lord said to Moses. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, those are strong words, beloved. These are coming from the mouth of God. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, make you holy. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's how serious God is about the Sabbath. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days work shall, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now I encourage you later to really meditate on those words and answer this question. When you look carefully at what you see here in these words, did Jesus break the Sabbath? And did Jesus cause this other man to break the Sabbath? I've really given a lot of thought to this, so I'm not saying this just because I think it's the answer we're supposed to give. I really think that the answer is no, because Jesus was not arrogantly brushing aside the command of God in order to do whatever he desired. Do you see that? It's not as though he's like, yeah, Sabbath, Shabbat, I'll do whatever I want to do on this day. That was not his heart. Jesus was walking in obedience to his Father and he was demonstrating love to another man. In other words, far from breaking the law, he was fulfilling the law because love is the height of the law. Isn't that right? The law is fulfilled in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and then love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was fulfilling the law. Further, while it's possible that carrying a mat could be a, a violation of the Sabbath, it all comes down to this. Why were you carrying the mats? If for some reason someone was carrying that burden as a part of their normal labor, their normal industry, if they were refusing to listen to the Lord and honor the Sabbath, then that would be a violation of the Sabbath. But if a person had rolled up his mat 
and put it on his shoulder and began to walk with it through the city because God had did an amazing thing and the guy still needed his bed, then that's no violation of the Sabbath, is it? The man's not trying to work. The man's trying to worship. Can we see that? The heart of the Sabbath law is that love is permissible. Love is always permissible, beloved. This is not technical work. I am no rabbinical scholar, but if I was in court advocating for this man, I could make a strong case that neither he nor Jesus broke the Sabbath. Now please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. And if you don't know your Bibles real well, just ask someone around you to help you. We're glad you're here. We're glad that you're learning your Bibles. Jeremiah 17, sort of in the middle. Jeremiah 17, I want to read verses 21 through 22 because this specifically says something about carrying a burden on the Sabbath. And we need to really ask the question, did Jesus do the right thing or the wrong thing here? Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. Boy, I pray that we'll hear that, how serious the Sabbath is and was to God. Take care for the sake of your lives. And do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem and do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. As you consider these words, do you think Jesus violated the Sabbath? Again, I think the answer is no because he did not command this man to bear this burden in the course of his normal labor. He commanded this man to bear this burden as an act of compassion. As I just said a second ago, we have to understand, this mat was not just any other possession to this guy, it was his only possession. If he didn't have his mat with him, what would he sleep on? He needed his mat, it was an act of compassion. Jesus healed him from head to toe and said, of course, son, of course, roll that thing up and take it with you and God be with you. Go celebrate the things of God. If I am right, that neither Jesus nor this man broke the law of God, then why were the religious leaders so incensed that they began to persecute him and not even to give him a trial? Why would they not even give him a hearing? Why would they not even let him make the case for the fact that he did not break the Sabbath? Here is the answer, and I state it strongly. They condemned him because he did violate their interpretation of the Sabbath laws. Their interpretation of the Sabbath laws was written in a volume called Mishnah Shabbat. It's 24 chapters long, it's 116 pages long, and it spells out all the ways that people must obey the Sabbath or else. Let me read for you just one paragraph to help you understand what Jesus was facing in these days. This is probably the most important text in this particular case. The number of principal melachot, which means works on the day of the Sabbath, is 40 minus one. The Jews love to put it that way for whatever reason. We're talking about 39 things. Here are 39 things you may not do on the Sabbath. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves. David Gunderson, I know you're gonna bind some sheaves later this afternoon, not today. You may not thresh. You may not winnow, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, whitening it, combing it, dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, 
tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches. And speaking of stitches, the next thing you can't do, hunting a deer, slaughtering it, skinning it, salting it, curing its hide, scraping it, cutting it. And speaking of deer, the next thing you can't do, write two letters, erasing for the purpose of writing two letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a flame, lighting a flame, striking with a hammer, and now here's the key thing, carrying anything from one domain to another. These are the principal melachot, they number 40 minus one. That's what Jesus was facing, beloved. That's what he violated. That book goes on for another 115 pages to describe all that in great detail, 39 categories in great detail, spelled out, nobody may violate any of this. In one way, I find it commendable that the elders of Israel cared so much about the word of God that they wanted to spell out exactly what it looked like to obey the word of God. Some people are so fast and loose with the Bible or don't even pay attention to the Bible that you wonder how they can even think that they really know God. So at least these people are striving to know God, but they created or they committed an equal but opposite error. And that is they became so committed to spelling out all the details of of what the word of God means that their spelling out became more important than the words of God. Do you see that? It's so tempting for us to do this is just to create a bunch of rules and to impose them upon everybody else as though God himself imposed them and to demand that everybody do exactly what we think that they should do. But that is legalism and it is a rejection of God. When our rules, our interpretations of God's word become more important than God's word, guess what? We have rejected God. Nothing less than a rejection of God has taken place in that case. If you think about it, beloved, the Sabbath law is serious, but it is so simple. Can I just put it this way? Take a day off, would you? And enjoy God. Enjoy each other. Don't think that your God that you have to work seven days a week, that you have to wear yourself out to the bone. Just take a day, set it aside to celebrate God, celebrate the things he is, celebrate the things he's done, enjoy your life, just take a day, it's very simple. God was so wise, beloved, to lay out the basic principle and then to leave it to his people to work out the details. If they simply had love for God, they would not need a list of 39 things. And besides, why stop with those 39 things, right? Why not just keep spelling out everybody that everything that someone can't do? You may not pick up a pan and lift it up over your head. This is not a joke, actually. They had this law that you couldn't lift anything up over shoulder height, otherwise you broke the Sabbath. I just broke the Sabbath by doing this. Why not spell it out? Where would that list end? How many books would have to be written? And then who could remember all of it, right? That's legalism. It is the dead end of legalism. Love takes another path. The Lord just says, take a day off. Enjoy me, think about what I've done, think about my word, think about my will, think about my ways, love each other. Of course, you're free to love each other on the Sabbath. That was enough, that was wise, but legalism took over and produced death. The Jews had to add to God's word all of their rules, and believe me, they used all of their political power to enforce their rules. When someone stepped out of line from their rules, pardon the expression, but there was hell to pay, and this was why they were condemning Jesus. When I look carefully at all the Sabbath texts in the Bible, I don't think he violated the Sabbath at all. I think, though, that he violated their rules. So now look with me back in John chapter 5. We're just really gonna consider one more verse for today. Just wanna look at Jesus' response in verse 17. He did answer them. 
This shows me, by the way, that he saw some validity in their criticism. Sometimes when he felt they were just trying to trap him, he refused to answer, but at least in this case, he answered. And he said this, verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. That's a simple sentence, but I'm telling you, that is a very profound statement. We're gonna think about the implications of that statement for two weeks. That's how much is in there. But for now, what I want us to notice, do you notice that he didn't say anything about the law? He did not try to make his case over against the law. He didn't do what I just did. Like, people, here's the law, here's what I did, I didn't break the law. He didn't go to their rules and say, listen, you've added all these rules, those are not valid rules, I do not submit myself to their rules. Here's what he did. He said that the work of my father is the foundation of my work. He said that the reason I was working is because my father was working and I was simply following my father. I was acting in love toward God and therefore I acted in love toward others. I was fulfilling the law. Jesus was not playing fast and loose with the word of God here. I've heard some preachers use this text to justify sort of rebelling against religious norms and all that stuff and that's absolutely not what's happening in this text. Jesus was trying to help legalists understand that they had set aside God's word for their own rules. He was actually following God. He was showing the path to fulfilling the law. He was showing that love is inherently submissive to God. And love is inherently merciful toward the people that are around us. His eyes were fixed on his father. His feet were following his father. He was not just working any work, beloved. He was working the works of his father. So as I've reflected on this this week, I discern the following principle. I hope it's a blessing to you. It may not immediately make a lot of sense to you, but I really encourage you to think about it. Here's the principle. Any work that God works is a permissible work. Even in ancient times on the Sabbath, any work that God works is a permissible work. Now I have seen in my life, and and I'm sure I have done in my life, where I, think I have done things that I wanted to do and I put God's name on those things. I'm thinking of a particular person in our ministry in California who wanted to divorce her husband. She had no grounds to divorce her husband, but she, she basically put it on God. She told me face to face, God wants me to be happy, so I'm gonna divorce him. She did not wanna hear the word of God. She was not working a work of God. I'm not talking about that person. But I am saying with all boldness, any work that God works, no matter what our human rules are, is a permissible work. I am saying that. I have in mind the person who is pursuing God, who is enjoying fellowship with God, who is regularly reading the word of God, whether a little each day or a lot each day. The amount doesn't matter. The heart is what matters. I'm thinking of the person who is learning what it means to pray without ceasing. I'm thinking of the person who is learning what it means to engage in the life of the body of Christ. I'm thinking of the person who is seeking to learn how to discern and do the will of God. For that person, when God reveals a work, any work that God works is a permissible work. Sometimes God will push the boundaries of the things that we think are proper because he's acting in love and stretching our understanding of his law. But even when he's sort of stretching our understanding, this person's main focus is, I'm gonna do the works of my father. I'm gonna submit to my father. I'm gonna follow my father. Beloved, any work that God works is a permissible work. That's the antidote to legalism. Legalism says, here's a book filled with rules. And by the way, let's not be too hard on the Jews or the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox people. Reformed people are great at writing thick, thick, thick books and saying you must pay attention to all these things. 
It saddens me, but often when I'm with a gathering of pastors, the Reformed guys are often the most arrogant guys at the table, and that's really, really sad, very sad. Let's look at our own hearts, okay? Our rules are not equal to God's laws. Any work that God works is a permissible work, even if it pushes against the things that we hold dear. This calls for discernment, amen, I agree with that, and yet God is able to have his will and his way in our lives. So as for us, this teaching doesn't imply that we're free to work any work. Please hear me, I am not saying that, but I am saying that we're free to follow God no matter what the cost or no matter what the consequence. We are free to look to him, to listen to him, to seek him in the community of the body, to discern his will and then to do his will even if it seems a little odd, even if it seems a little bit out of the categories that we have created. I think, beloved, that we need in fact, just to be free from the fear of violating all these human rules. I think we need to come back to the heart of the law, which is this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and love other people as yourself. Jesus is the one who enables us to do that. And if we'll simply submit to the law of love, beloved, so many things that are unclear to us will be clear. In the next couple weeks, we're gonna press into the details of the implications of what Jesus said here. But for now, could I just pray that God would help us to learn the freedom of the law of love and that he would help us to escape from legalism. Our Father, I thank you for this text. In some ways, it, is, it's, it saddens me because this text should be about celebrating the miracle that you did in the life of this man. But because of the legalistic heart, it has to become a discussion about legalism and love. It has to become about the contours of following you, of knowing you, of obeying you, of honoring you, of honoring other people, and that saddens me. And yet at the same time, I'm so grateful because we still struggle with these things, Father, and I pray that you would use this text to minister deeply to all of our hearts. I pray that you would apply it to every life that's here today, Father. I pray that you would help each one of us to see how this story applies to us. I pray that you would help us see where we are grasping on to the traditions of men over the very words of God. I pray that you would help us to escape from the trap of legalism. I pray that you would empower us by the love of Christ to live by the law of love. I pray that you would help us to know what it means to follow you, to love you, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Father, I thank you for giving us this word, and I thank you by faith for how you will use this word now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.